Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net. Programming Throwdown, episode 21. Mailbag? So, this is a pretty exciting episode, mailbag episode. Uh, one quick thing before we get started, if um, if this is your first time, uh, if this is your first episode that you've listened to, listen to a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, this is, uh, you know, we've accumulated a lot of questions throughout the other episodes, and um, so this is our chance to sort of answer a lot of those questions and sort of engage in a dialogue about that. Um, but you know this is deviating highly from the original format of the show, and so if you kind of want to get an essence of, you know, if you want to learn a programming language or get an essence of the show, uh, watch the one four. Okay. <laughs> so, with that said, um, well, maybe actually peop- the guests will be funnier than us, so then it'll make this episode better than the other episodes. Oh, that's true. If you didn't like the last episode, watch this one. Okay. And if anybody who ends up on this episode is better than us, we're going to kick you off and make you start your own <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, so, anyways. So, um, yeah, so basically... Take it uh, away with the news. News. Or a personal... Oh, we have to start with a personal, personal story. Personal story. So, um, you know, they're having the hurricane, Hurricane Sandy. Actually, they, they, they had, had the hurricane. hurricane. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as Floridians, we've been through plenty of hurricanes ourselves. And one thing that I always wondered was, um, why don't they set up, like... Why don't they have a mode in your cell phone where you can do like some kind of ad hoc? So, for example, let's say the cell phone towers go down, right? Um, Ooh, wouldn't like there a be mesh, some a way, cell phone mesh network? Yeah, like a cell phone peer-to-peer network where you could call people, and as long as one person in the network had access to the tower, um, then they would, you know, you'd be able to get your call through. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out they have something like this, but um, for like policy reasons, it's not completely implemented. So in some phones, like in some circumstances, you can actually call 911 and it will route you through other phones, Hmm. which is pretty incredible. And it's something that's not on by default, but like, so just a heads up for people, the technology behind broadcasting, and correct me if I'm wrong, you probably know more about hardware stuff, but so any cell phone can also broadcast. So like if you can receive, you can also broadcast. Something to do with like the physics behind it. Well, it's a two-way communication. Yeah, but so, I mean, like, the tower can talk to you, and you can talk to the tower, but you can also talk, like, broadcast outwards. Well, I mean, if you're talking to the tower, you are broadcasting. Oh, really? It's you don't not know like where a cone or something? Or? I mean, I don't... So, that, yeah. That technology exists, but not, I mean, I think in general, you just have a sphere around you of, you know, ah. gradient, just, you know, going down by the Kublar or whatever, power, farther away you get. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so that makes sense then. So yeah, you can totally do it from like a physics, math. But I think the reason it, it's not implemented like overall is a couple reasons. One, like if you so if you ever study like sensor networks or whatever, you know, it's like certain nodes happen to become like uh, gateway nodes or like key nodes that a lot of stuff flows through. And if you become that guy, your phone's gonna drain. Oh. You're, you're just gonna like have your phone in your pocket, not using it, and go back to it and be like, why is it em- like why is it all gone? Oh, that's right. So, true. so like I that that would be that. That. so you have to have all this extra stuff to make it not be that. And the second thing also is that when the cell tower is broadcasting to you, it's got for all intents and purposes infinite power, right? It just sits there and beams yep. out really strong as whatever limits they have set. But your cell phone has very limited, so it hears quietly, but then it also talks quietly. But the cell tower has very expensive antennas and equipment to be able to you know, receive that quiet message and pick it up from the noise. So I I think that's the whole mechanism versus if you're talking to other phones, it's not going to have the same range as you to the tower. Gotcha. Because the receiving antenna on the other phone isn't as 
strong. So it would probably work, and in some instances probably would be better, especially in densely populated areas, like maybe like New York City or something. Mm -hmm. But in most regions, like I don't think you're gonna, I wouldn't know what the range is, but it's probably not that far. Oh, that makes sense, that makes sense. That, that's my uh, top of the brain <laughs> response. But it would be cool for emergencies, like yeah. have a special mode you put it in. So I think the way it works is the carrier can put your phone into this mode. Um, and so then you Only can, if they can talk to your phone. Um, oh, yeah. So how does that work? Oh, so I guess you have to get put into this mode like before a disaster or something. I'm not really sure. It's interesting, though. <laughs> I guess it works for hurricanes. They anticipate the disaster coming. Yeah, <laughs> for earthquakes, it might not work. Um, uh, one of our one of our listeners is pointing out uh, Batman. Yes, this did happen in Batman. <laughs> did it really? It's totally awesome. They subverted the phone network to detect where everybody was. Wasn't that one of the movies? Did you see the? Uh, oh, we should say spoiler alert. Sorry. Oh yeah. Well, that's there a really old Batman. But <laughs> it's okay. Oh, it's the original. Oh, then totally, totally cool. Everyone's yeah, not the new one. That. Yeah. Right. So the um, did you see the Die Hard? The what is is the last Die Hard? It's like the Die Hard and Never Stop Dying or whatever. I don't know some cheesy name, but. In the last one, it was they were going around trying to catch this hacker, and the terminology was like it was like palm forehead the whole movie. Uh, it's, like, it's like they've most gone into our interwebs and they're stealing all the uh, webs. There won't be any webs left, and it's just like, oh, come on. Okay, actually, like we're getting a technique. correction. I don't like this. People are correcting us while we're talking. <laughs> Normally, I like to pretend that we're always right. Yeah, yeah. Every other episode, we're always okay. right. But we're we're it's, it's actually a mesh, mesh protocol network. Ah, okay. So I so, listened to the Twit. You ever listen to Twit? This guy, Leo Laporte or whatever, he has like a pretty popular yeah. like general tech broadcast. And he always has people in his IRC chat room. And sometimes they have conversations back and forth with the chat room or whatever. Yeah. And then, yeah, I understand now why he sometimes gets distracted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But it's good. It's good. Live feedback. Yeah, this is pretty awesome. So the... Um, the other thing that we should talk about is the election. There's, in case people didn't know, there's actually an election going on in the U.S., which some of you, you know, might not know or might not care about. But <laughs> um, join us. <laughs> we don't, oh, no, no I'm wait, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But uh, no, it's super interesting. And the thing that's interesting to me is how um, every election, the technology changes, you know, drastically because entire four years has gone by. And I feel this also with the Olympics. So. You know, as we talked about on that show, you know, we went from, you know, the Olympics only being on TV to then you had TiVo and you could record the Olympics on TiVo. That was cool. And then it was starting to get on the Internet. Like NBC had this deal with Microsoft where they had like some of the Olympic events there. And then now with YouTube this time broadcasting the entire Olympics. Um, in certain countries. Yeah, in certain countries, yeah. There's, there's still policy problems. But from a tech standpoint, it's cool to see every four years, like, a massive leap. Like, not just some quanta of leap, like a gigantic leap. I was watching Katie Couric uh, on a rebroadcast on ABC being rebroadcast live on YouTube <laughs> talking about the number of Twitter follow Twitter users this year versus last election yeah. and how that has ballooned, you know, up a lot. And I would say even Twitter's, what is the cliche, jump the shark, right? Like, yeah, yep. even me, like already see people don't use Twitter the same way they used to to have conversations, yep. um, except on those TV shows and people like, hey, Katie Couric, talk about me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, mom. Um, and they have terrible filtering on that, by the way. I saw one where it was like, it was literally like this guy was talking and the Twitter feed like was scrolling by and this one guy was like, 
I think aliens are like retarded. And it's like had nothing to do with talking about hockey. And I was like, what? Spammer. <laughs> yeah, it's like. He just did... detected, like, oh, like this is a upcoming hashtag. Like, start putting it in my messages. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, how did they know. don't have like a person? I would, you would think, I, I, I'm sure the like high level ones do. Yeah, like presidential debate or whatever yeah, they probably yeah. did for that. So, but um, they were talking about social media. And I think that is a good point. Like, people yeah. hash this out. And it's interesting to see when people post politically which some people like and some people don't like political posts on social network. But it's interesting to see the engagement from not only, like we said, people in the United States, but people in other countries. Yeah. It's really interesting, actually. People are fascinated by our process here. It's not straightforward. It's very confusing. I mean, I tried to explain the electoral college. I had to explain that at lunch today. It's so hard. And and it's like, I don't even like, I mean, I I understood it, the process, but I don't understand. People started asking questions like, why is it like this? Oh, I mean, the why is, it's fairly, I mean, it's straightforward to say why, like, you know, well, it's somebody, an alternative, but some people say it shouldn't be that way anymore. Somebody said That's the why. Question. So, for example, if like, like let's say California has, I don't know, people are going to be bored about politics. They're going to be like, 50. I thought we were over with the election. Now we're listening to programming throwdown. Don't talk about politics. <laughs> okay, but, but we'll do real one. Quick, one real, real quick. quick. All right. Like if California has like fifty electoral votes, I don't know how many it has. Let's okay. say fifty. They're like if half the people voted one way and half voted the other, like shouldn't twenty five go? Like like the winner take all. I had a hard time like explaining like why that makes sense. So I guess in theory, like it used to be that way sometimes, like people could decide. And I think, I think in some states it's yeah, still it's like Maine is still that can. way partly. Yeah. Um, but the or in some states it's district by district. So it's not like you say, uh, but it's like uh, so you have rep- so electoral college is the two senators plus however many representatives you have. And so the representatives are uh, geographically located by a certain region, oh, and they see. can cast votes by whatever the popular vote in their region is. Got it, um, got it. And so that's even a, a high, more highly divided way of doing it. But I think that the, I mean, the whole reason like why it's like winner take all, the whole reason that electoral college is kind of there, you know, aside from like some legacy reasons also, is to provide that, you know, you have a state like Alaska or, you know, North Dakota or something that are very sparsely populated, very few people, but they still have a lot of cares. Like it still matters a lot to them. Right. So if you give them only a percentage vote like you get in the popular vote, they essentially get no say in uh, who gets elected to president, even though they're a part of the United States, arguably, like other people are because there's a lot of land resources there. They might produce a lot. Like there's all these different measures of how important various states are. And gotcha. so this is kind of trying to be a compromise between every person is one person and like people are proportional to the importance of their state gotcha gotcha um you know that some uh, that i'm probably butchering that but no, that's okay it sounded good i should have <laughs> used that argument at lunch it would have made okay instead i was just like i don't know so so on to the news yep you got the um, first news article okay um so i think this is pretty awesome so i run linux at home um i have a windows machine that i use just to play games and uh Mainly because my games are on Steam, and uh, I heard you can run Steam through Wine, but it's like, it's like I mean, you can whine about running Steam under Wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. Bad <laughs> puns. I'm sorry. So, yeah, so you can you can do this, but it's like I had a Windows machine from when I was in college, and it's kind of like why not just just keep it for this, right? Rather than deal with it. But um, Steam is coming to Linux very shortly, and so this article is actually a press release from NVIDIA um, and in the press release they talk about how Steam is going to be like, you know, they're, they're already testing Steam like on Linux with their cards and things like that. So um, you can sort of insinuate from this article that it's eminent. The so Steam I also heard that it was faster. Really? Like I, I saw like something, Steam? they were saying like it, it runs like it's actually like better. 
Yeah, because I have issues with Steam. Like on, on now, my, granted, my computer is rather old because it's old Windows box. But sometimes, if a app or if a game on Steam decides it wants to update, like it'll instead of updating in the background, it'll just lock my Steam. Like I can't do anything mm. with it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Maybe they. No, it'll be great. I, I mean, it would be nice. The big, a big hindrance to using Linux or everything is this, right? Like, yeah. a lot of the applications and stuff, you know, just don't don't work very well or, or aren't supported at all. Yeah. And totally. so as that becomes less of an issue, so I think things like also the humble humble indie bundle, which we've talked about several times, yeah. and their big thing is it has to be cross platform to be there. I, I believe that's like one of their things. Like it has to be yeah. on every totally. platform to be featured in one of the bundles, and I think that's really good. Like having developers kind of address this and yep. then also like as a you know buyer like you know like if i buy that then i'm less locked into what so it's not just drm so steam has some drm issues and now that they're going cross-platform maybe some of that will be a little bit better but there's the, the drm locked in but even non-drm you could still be locked in because of what the only system that supports the games or applications you have right but as more are available across platform then i'm less locked in and i can move back and forth how yeah. I want. Yeah, like imagine, I mean, you know, when Windows uh, XP, no, when Windows 98 came out, it supported USB and Windows 95 didn't. That was one That's of the right. big changes. And so, you know, if something like that happens again, uh, and if all your games are on Steam and now Windows 8 comes out, Windows 8 supports some hardware that you need that, that you know, you can't upgrade. You know, so if you end up in this position where like you have to upgrade your computer, you don't want to be forced to upgrade into Windows. Like if you have the opportunity to upgrade into Linux and keep all your existing apps, like that's going to be very enticing, hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, this is a whole like shift in the way we purchase things. So it went from scarcity, right? Like I buy bread, then I take that, you know, those atoms and molecules home to my house, right? And like this is the scarcity thing. And, mm -hmm. and not to get into economics of it, um, because don't know anything about it. But, uh, <laughs> but it's just like now we have less and less of that. Like we buy things which are digital, which right. are okay. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. But then things like Netflix, like I pay every month, but I don't really own anything. If I stop paying, I lose, no matter how much money I've spent total, like I lose all of that the day I stop paying um, and yeah. or the next month. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I lose that. But then you have these kind of hybrid things like a Steam or there's been video services where you purchase, download things, but they still have this DRM or this connection back to where if that company goes away, you can no longer authorize your stuff to play. Yep. You may or may not be able to get it kind of you know unlocked so you can keep playing. So you've bought a game, but the game is not exactly yours to do what you want with. And yep. even we talked about previously about the new um, new consoles going to also try to do this some kind of thing about linking or locking your game to your your specific console. So it's not if you if that one dies and you go buy a new one or you upgrade to the version two, like you may or may not be able to take it depending on the good graces of. Yep. the console developer and the game developer. Yeah, so from like a, like security, cryptography, you know, point of view, if if you're not hitting the internet, so so if any security measure is just on your machine, then you should be able to crack it. Like from a math yeah, standpoint. Theoretically, eventually, yeah. with enough effort, you could crack it. Yeah, and I mean, these passwords and things are cracked all the time. But as soon as you make it to where you have to tra transfer some information to and from the cloud, then you can end up in a situation where you can't crack the password, at least not easily. And so, yeah, that's there's, so there's a lot of problems. I, and I feel like it's one of those things like, and, and maybe it's just, but you have like the 99.999% separate from the like 1%. But you <laughs> yeah, know, we are like, just have like all the people out there and they're just oblivious to this. They're just giving the monies to the companies and they don't understand the implications long-term, right? Yeah. It was the classic thing like the, the mother who bought for their kid like all this music on their iPod 
and then wanted to buy their kid a Zune and like, oh wait, nothing works on here. Like, well, I don't under like, why not? Yeah. And it's just confusing yeah. and like, in some ways, it's like, well, what are you gonna do? Like, I mean, that's you know, caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware, right? But it, on the other hand, it's like you feel, I don't know. Like, we're not having a lot of like. I like when things bring choice. Yeah. So totally. I like things like the humble indie bundle, which is you know, no DRM or yep. or you know, even Steam. Like now they're making available other things. I still, nah, I'm not 100 percent comfortable with that. But if they're bringing me value, right? So like they will, uh, you know. They provide an incentive for games which were no longer supported to become resupported, so they can be resold at a low value on Steam because of the distribution mechanism like that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there, there's a value there. You know, I, I may still want if it's if a game is the same price on Steam and not on Steam, I'd rather buy it not on Steam. But now really? that's even harder and harder because I buy it not on Steam. Oh, without the DRM, then. Well, right, well, well. So that's the idea, yeah, right? Like, yeah. but you do because now all these things that are like also have some other weird thing that yeah. like you got to register with this thing or whatever, and it's like, oh, well, if I'm gonna have to go ahead and do that for this, I might as well just have it on Steam where yeah. it kind of handles. Yeah, I all got that, the flight so. simulator the other day, the Microsoft flight simulator, mm -hmm. the new one. I think it's called Flights. It's like rebranded. Okay. Um, and yeah, it wasn't on Steam, but it still required that I have this like Windows Live account on in the, in the cloud somewhere yeah. and all sorts of DRM. So, okay, well, enough talking about that. Okay. So, I checked out the Microsoft Surface since we're talking Did about OS. Really? Yes. So, so, what's it like? Yeah, tell us. So, I was at the mall and I was like, I'm going to go. So, a couple of things to note. First of all, uh, some people out there might roll their eyes. I, that was the busiest I'd ever seen the Microsoft store. Yeah, and isn't it so, so many you, people? So at the mall locally, the yeah, yeah, it looks exactly like the Apple so, store. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yes, but it's, it's <laughs> at this specific mall that I went to here um, in the San Francisco area, the Bay Area. It is right across, literally right across the street from or the mall aisle from the Apple store, and. It is, it's crazy. It's like you can just like literally see out the front windows of one and into the other. And okay, we're having some. Uh, oh, some, go ahead. Some I'll sort okay. Out. Anyway, so you can see from one to the other. So you normally stand in the Microsoft store and there's like very few people around. There's a couple of people, somebody playing Connect, the Just Dance game in the front. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you look across the Apple store and you see like people everywhere, <laughs> people. Yeah. So, um, but the Microsoft store does have, like, it's pretty nice. I like, go in there, you know, and it's reasonable. And when I was looking at the Surface, there was like a line, like every Surface, they had so many Surfaces set out, like so many of the tablets, we might confuse people, mm -hmm. so many of the tablets set out, and like every one, there was like a, like a line of one or two people to like wait to try it after the person who was using it was done. So we kind of walked around, and I found like this other area that like, oh, okay, like this was like to try out the keyboards, but I don't really care about the keyboards, yeah. I just wanted to see the, the thing. Um, so is it running Windows 8, or was it? So it runs Windows 8 RT, which is the ARM-based version of Windows ah, 8. So you, okay. you can't just like bring your own applications, your old like you know Windows 95 applications and just run them. And when you are using it, it's not obvious that that's actually a problem. Like it's like everything just seems to work just like when you can get to like the little start menu. It's slightly different Windows 8 differences. But for the most part, it just like worked and like stuff is there and it was nice. But you know the this, the form factor of it is a little bit strange to me. Like the so what's squareness aspect ratio of it is a little bit strange uh, to me, like holding it, but maybe that's just because I have an iPad, so I'm used to like the iPad ratio, so it's, it's just something different. The keyboard was, it's, it's pretty nice to so type on. So how does the keyboard, like, give us a mental Okay, so there's like a, well, I mean, most people, you can go look on the internet, it's much easier to see it. It's slightly more rectangular than the iPad, so like, okay. you know, the back. It has a little kickstand that flips out, so it stands on its own. Oh, I see. And then it has the cover, it folds down, and has keys on it. Oh, got it, got it. And then you can type on it. 
And Ooh, cool. um, they have two versions, one that's like a touch typing and one that has like actual kind of mechanical keys. Oh, so you get the haptic feedback. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was actually, you know, it was pretty nice. There was a couple like instances where we were playing around. So it was my brother and I we were trying stuff like, and it seemed like it wasn't registering our clicks. But, you know, and I've seen some reports on the internet about people saying, like, that also happened to them. Like, it kind of only half registers the click. Like, the animation plays, but not the underlying feedback of what's supposed to happen. Um, but also, it's one of those things, like, when I first got my iPad, I was completely like, ah, stuff's not working. <laughs> like, I can't slide it to unlock. Like, what's going on? Like, it took me a minute to get kind of, oh, you need to hold, like, get just below the button or just above. Like, you know, kind of what you have to mold your brain to kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. in the right way so uh, you know it was yeah, it's pretty nice you know cool, I, I, cool. it's a you can kind of in some ways it almost you, maybe it's a cop out you want to say it's a version one right it's the first thing that they've done how does it work from like a developer standpoint um, do you do you I guess you build in so Visual I'm, Studio or something yeah I'm not the like I haven't studied as much as I probably should have to, to start talking about it <laughs> no, but, no but I mean I think yeah so I think there's essentially uh, Windows 8 SDK whatever equivalent, ah, right? Okay. and then yeah. you essentially can build for either platform and I'm sure if you're developing like a new app it's probably fairly straightforward to use the limited subset of things that are available maybe on the ARM process, right? right so like right. you can just develop for both pretty seamlessly. Cool, But cool. then like awesome. so there might be certain features that are only available when you go to the full Windows 8, you know, stack or whatever. So that would yeah, be my guess, but it's pretty nice. So then I went over and tried the iPad mini. Okay. So having the full iPad going to the iPad mini. So I have a Nexus 7. And the Nexus 7 is much cheaper than the iPad mini. It's $100 cheaper. iPad mini is about the same size, right? So I guess it's about the same size as the Nexus 7, except that the screen takes up more of the real estate. Oh, gotcha. So like the screen is bigger. Um, and the aspect ratio is slightly different. Um, so you want to show us your awesome Nexus 7? Oh, this is my Nexus 7. Well, people on the audio won't be That's like, what's the back going of on? your That's Nexus the back 7. of it. This is the front. <laughs> oh, cool. you can pretty see. awesome. Oh, okay. There's um, the time. I think, oh, yep. That Time is pretty accurate. Pretty okay. Seems, seems on time. Yeah. Seems on time. All down right. to pretty the, good. Down to the minute. Pretty good. I've got a, got a key code here. Yeah. Um, anyways. Time. It's locked, so nobody can mess with it. <laughs> yeah. Do, uh, so, it, so how does it compare? So, so uh, you know, it seemed pretty nice, but it it wasn't compelling. It's like it's for how much more expensive it was. It was just like, eh. yep, you know, yep. if you so for me, right? The first world problem is that what they call it, right? Like, <laughs> I have an iPad, I have an iPhone, I have a <laughs> yeah, Nexus Seven, I have a laptop, I have a desktop, and like I have all of the spectrum. Yeah. And it's like if I just took like a iPhone or I've used an Android phone before, and this also you know fairly equivalent to me, you know, just some subtle reasons is why I chose one over the other. Mm -hmm. um, and then having a tablet, which I do think for uh, when I got my iPad, which has been you know almost two years now, is that um, at that time like I felt like it was much better than the competing tablets. Yeah. And now now it's a little more even. Um, but then having that middle one is kind of like. Uh, you know, and so if you're gonna get a middle size one, so I use it kind of like as an e-reader, right? Instead of a Nook or or, yeah, a, yeah, totally. or a Kindle or something. Um, that middle size one is is nice, but you don't want to pay a lot. Yeah, yeah. Because you're only gonna use. It's like if I'm mobile, mobile, I'm using my phone. If I'm relaxed, you know, at home, I'm using my my big screen, my my tablet. It's much better for web viewing. Yeah. So it's only like in the car, at the airport, right? Like a few, you know, like taking it around to work meetings when I don't want to have to carry a big, like that kind of stuff that the, thing it, that the middle one fits. The thing that's kind of funny is I've sort of seen over the like years our transformation. So I remember I was thinking, oh, I'd never really use a smartphone. And now it's like I chop off my arm before I'd give up my smartphone. Yeah. And <laughs> it was like, oh, you know, an iPad. Yeah, you remember or, or debating. I remember debating getting a smartphone. Like, oh, yeah. I want a paid data plan and have the internet. Oh, it's yeah. so expensive. Will I use it? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah now it's like every minute. And then I remember when we were talking about the iPad on one of the very first episodes, we were like, oh, I don't know if the tablet like really makes sense. And now it's like we use tablets all the time. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really, it's really a testament to how audacious you have to be as a hardware developer. Like you have to make something that nobody thinks they want. And, and then, then convince people they want it. Yeah, and then get and then have people's lifestyle adapt in a way that's like that fits that device. You know, it's really, it's really amazing that any of this stuff gets gets as widespread as it is. You know. Yeah. Oh, so uh, people of the podcast, listeners of the podcast, may remember I have several uh, rants against Kickstarter. I'm not as pro Kickstarter as really? a lot of people. I thought you were super pro Kickstarter. Really? Uh, I get accused I, of being like anti Kickstarter. I remember you ranting about. I'm like kind of. I straddled the fence. Okay. So I did see, which, I, you know, it's anecdotal, right? So it's not, not proof. But um, they had this really awesome iPhone dock. I think it was called the Elevation dock or whatever. Okay. It's this really slick, machined iPhone dock. It's, like, really easy to put your iPhone down in, and it would charge it. It had, like, an audio out port as an option. It was just really, really nice, like, really high-end design, right? Yeah. So you would have bought it, like, uh, over 12 months ago. And it was supposed to ship – I'm going to mess with the exact days. I don't have it in front of me. But, like, April – Right, so it didn't end up shipping until like only like four or five weeks ago. So like, let's call it five, four or five months late, six okay. months late. On top of it, you would have paid a fairly good price. I, I believe like the cheaper ones were, you know, still like I want to say like seventy-five dollars type of range. I, I'm I'm probably wrong on that, yeah. but um, that that kind of range. Oh, that's pretty nice. But oh, it's nice, right? They didn't end up shipping, which just could have happened at any time. But they delayed. They didn't. They got way more orders than they thought, whatever, right? They delayed. It was a very profitable Kickstarter. They, they shipped, uh, sold a lot of them. And then right before, when they finally shipped, some people got their docks literally the day before they got their iPhone 5s, which changed the dock connector. <laughs> oh, no. Are you serious? Yep. So some people were getting them who bought iPhone 5s. Well, arguably, if you're buying a nice dock, you're a... You know, I, you know, you really like the iPhone. Yeah, you're you using, you probably upgrade, yep. and then like you're buying it, and it's like obsolete. Oh, it's like ah. So I they saw that. I felt so dock. bad for this. Yeah. So they changed the dock connector in the most recent one. I wonder why. Uh, a lot of reasons, but we won't get into it. Oh, okay. Into it right now. I mean, it makes sense. I'm not faulting Apple for oh, doing okay. it or whatever. But just another one of those Kickstarter things. You're not buying it today. You're pre-buying something that's going to be made. Then it might slip, and then yep. you finally get it. It's like it's ah. already obsolete. Versus like you know. If you knew you were going to buy the iPhone and you saw that in the store, like let's say, you know, the Target or Walmart, right? You were going to, you knew you were going to buy the iPhone 5. You might wait before buying it because you know you're going to buy the new iPhone and you, there's rumors that it might be changing. But back when people bought this thing, there were no rumors that the iPhone dock would be changing. Yeah, totally, totally. So, or I, I don't think so anyways. You, maybe just, you have to invest so far in advance and the technology changes so quickly. You just, yeah. I'll still, I'll still go for board games though. Board yeah, game yeah, Kickstarter yeah, is pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. timeless. Some, uh, well, <laughs> I, mean, I could get into some negativity on that too, but <laughs> really? I have the one I ordered. It did turn out well, and it is nice. There you go. Which one did you so, order? Uh, what is it called? For the Win? Oh, I haven't heard of that one. For the Win. So it's like an abstract tile lane game about pirates, ninjas, zombies. Amazing. And one other. What is the? Monkeys. Amazing. I think. And Amazing. so it's a tile abstract thing, and you play. Each one has like a special effect and allows you to flip over the tile or not. Awesome. And so it's kind of. It's, it's pretty good. Nice. And it was a good deal. Nice. So I've enjoyed that. All right. So is it time for viewer questions? I think it is. Let's get viewer to viewer questions. So we had a, a good response. We had a lot of people sending questions. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for the questions. Pretty awesome. You have high quality, great questions, and uh, sound effects. Pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's just get to straight to the mailbag. So 
We'll do. We'll kind of mix up some questions from like the audience and some questions from. Okay. The yeah. So, um, you know, if you have a a question, uh, and you're on the hangout right now, because we do have some live listeners. Looks like we have like three or three people, four people. Um, and if you have a question, just type it into the chat box, and uh, we'll either like have you read it out loud or or we'll read the question. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, type your question out in the chat box. Plus, that'll keep us from answering your question with like without knowing it's you and then you have to <laughs> ask your question again. That's super weird. So yeah, if you have your question, go ahead and like copy it from your email and like paste it into the into the chat from the hangout so that we know um, not to ask it because we have actually all the questions from the email out here. So the first question is from, and I really apologize if I butcher your name, but I'm going to try my best. It's from Marco Aurelio da Silva Saraiva. And he's from Brazil, I believe. Yes, I got it right. <laughs> um, it's a very Brazilian name. So he's from Brazil. Um, <clears throat> says, listening to you guys every episode, and it's been amazing. Thanks a lot. Uh, so he wants to know how internet crawlers work. So how ah. does how web crawling works. Like, So I guess I could take this one. OK. Um, so the way most internet crawlers work is they typically start with a seed set of websites. And so uh, with most of these crawlers like Google and Bing and things like that, you can actually submit your website. So you can actually tell like Google, Bing, Yahoo, whatever, like, you know, I have this website and you should add it to your list of, of seed sites. So it goes through these seed sites and um, for each one of these sites, it scrapes all the HTML, um, puts it in a reverse index, which I'll explain later, and then um, also finds all of the tags and then adds it to this queue. So in the beginning, the queue just has the seed websites in it. Like, so that would be stuff people submitted on their own, but also yep. like hub sites, like yep. you know Wikipedia or yep. sites that link to a lot of other sites. Yep, totally. So. Um, so yeah, so it'll have like you know Wikipedia, AOL.com, Yahoo.com, etc. And so you can imagine this queue that has all these websites on it, and the system will go, it'll pick one of the websites off the queue, and then it'll store that HTML somewhere, and and any images and things like that. And then for all the links, it'll add that to the back of the queue, and then it'll keep pulling web pages off and then adding more on. You can imagine this queue getting really, really, really big. Um, you know, of course, there's all sorts of what's called stemming. Which is, for example, let's say you're, um, you know how sometimes you go, like on YouTube, for example, you go and you search for something and there's like a million results and you could just keep paging through, right? So the, a stemming will know that, oh, this is really just millions and millions of these like results, but it's, it's just kind of like a search query and I don't really need to scan these. Like it doesn't really make sense for me to scan these. So it, it'll stop there. So it's not gonna go forever. It'll eventually, the stemming will make sure that you'll eventually run out of pages. So you know, you keep, this queue keeps growing and shrinking. And then finally, when the queue is down to zero, you have- well, you, It also marks, because you can have with cycles. So you, it has to mark right. and know who it's already visited. That's right, so when something, that's totally right. When something gets pushed off the queue, it gets put onto some, like some key, hash map. some hash, some hash set somewhere, which just says like, yeah, this is visited. So um, eventually, the queue gets down to zero. Uh, and the other thing is that this is distributed, right? So there's this queue, but you know, you're not like going to each one of these websites like on a single computer. You're pulling things off of the queue and then sending them to other computers, and then they're like going pulling all the images and stuff. 
and then they're just like telling you like what new things to add to the queue. So, you know, it sounds like this would take forever, but if you have like a ton of machines, you know. Well, no, I mean, it basically, I mean, it can grow faster than you could process it in some ways. That's true. Depending too. on like what your scale of processing is. So you just yeah. limit it to some time or, you know, probabilistically you're going to visit the most pop most popular websites will have the most links. So you'll kind of get them early on. Yep. And the other thing too is you don't want to completely cream some, like, like I run... Uh, my personal website where I have like hobby projects and like that. Well, if, like some search engine like Bing or something like hits all of my web pages all at the same time and like downloads all of the images, like it'll completely crush my computer, right? So they're pretty clever about, you know, you know, like, like, oh, I just went to this computer. Let's put this one back in the queue. Don't process it right now. And so there's all sorts of clever details there. Um, okay, so now you have a ton of these pages and you have like, think of it as a huge map where the key is the URL and the value is all of this HTML. And what you want is for somebody else to say, type in, so in this case, Marcos, he actually wants to make a Magic the Gathering like uh, like subnet. So he wants to have all his Magic the Gathering data that he's mined from the internet. So if you were to do this, Marco, and somebody types in like, I don't know, Ethereal Dragon. I'm trying to remember my Magic the Gathering cards. Uh, or Phantom Lancer, I don't remember. Anyways, so if someone types in one of the Magic the Gathering cards, you would want to pull up all the pages that have that name in it. And so that's what a reverse index does. So a reverse index is essentially a way where you can put in a word and it'll give you all of the values, all of the documents that have that word in it. And there's like a whole bunch of crazy information theory, information theoretic things that you can do. You can actually um, if you have the documents arranged in such a way, like if all the documents for one server are together, then you can actually with 99.9% .9 accuracy um, create a reverse index without scanning all the documents. So, you know, it's true that like this guy's website on, on uh, you know, antique cars might have Magic the Gathering, but it probably doesn't. And if you scan five pages and it's all antique cards, cars and you know there's like a very low correlation between that and ethereal dragons then you can just skip his entire website and so building the reverse index has all sorts of cleverness there too but uh so there are also i mean people have already written web crawlers that you can use in various languages which is is really nice yeah and totally. also and I'm, I'm trying to find it now on the fly. We didn't do a lot of prep going through the <laughs> questions and answering as well as we could have. Um, but there's also, if you search for like web crawling and Amazon EC2, yep. there are articles where people have written about how they do it. And there are also, and now you get into cost, right? So like you spin up an EC2 instance, so like you might have to pay for that. But there might be also um, data stores. Of other people have already done this, the web crawling part, yep. which is intensive and expensive. And you can essentially just use the data. So they'll create some data store and then you can just yep. you know, process that data store. So at least you save yourself half the Yeah, you know, and half one, the that's, one that's really great is called Common Crawl, highly recommended. Um, basically it's a totally open source um, reverse index of the internet. And so it, I think it even has images and things like that. So, so Marco, Aurelio, check out uh, Common Crawl. And uh, that way you don't have to do that part. You can just take advantage of the index they've already built. But I mean, inevitably, this is one of those things you find out is really hard to do. Yeah. Like it's super, actually super like hard. super, super hard. <laughs> like, and if you look at like Bing or Google or Yahoo, right? And like how much money they're spending like trying to do this quickly and accurately because websites change and they go down and links come up and links go down and you know it's just a, it's a really really big mess 
And yeah. so it, a lot of time and money is spent by really big companies to do this really well. So depending on what you try to do, sometimes it is just is not feasible for an individual, you know, without a good profit reason for doing it to, yeah, to totally. actually do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think they said on the Common Crawl website that just going through and looking up the number of times a word is there. Like if you want to see how many times the word the is on the internet, that'll basically cost you like a hundred dollars. <laughs> like yeah. in Amazon EC2 usage. So um, this would be an expensive hobby, but um, it can be done. It can totally be done, and and it can be done in a matter of days, which is pretty amazing. So Common Crawl has all their source code available online. So I also believe that um, Sebastian Thrun, am I yep. saying that right? I think yep. we've talked about him before on the uh, on here. He does one of those massively multiplayer, no, no, massively whatever online learning things. Oh, and I oh. think he so he did two, I believe, one in how to create a search engine. And one in how to create an autonomous car. Ah, so like nice. you know the the kind of uh, the background behind that. And I believe that one about creating a search engine. I would assume talks about web crawling at least at some level. So yeah. that might be something else to check it out. I'm trying to bring it up now, and I'm not seeing it exactly. Um, but yeah, so I would definitely check out um, if there's like uh, oh Udacity is the name of his platform. Oh yeah, that's right. And so I believe one of his is like how to write a search engine. And I don't know if it is applicable to this or not, but I. Um, I would check it out because that might yeah. have a lot of really good information. Okay, cool. So let's take one. Yeah, let's take one from the. Uh, um, Here we go from, from our live viewers, and I'll read it off, and you answer. So okay, all right. So, um, oh yeah, this is a great question. So this is from Aaron Chapman, and um, let me see. I actually have this Chapman. He's from Eastern Alabama. So hey, Aaron from Eastern Alabama. Um, <laughs> cool. So. It says, I love everything Apple. I've written five iPhone apps on the App Store, study Objective-C and Cocoa Touch constantly. And I find it difficult to continue doing this because there's no one near me that's interested in programming. I'd be happy to learn other languages, but there isn't anyone near me. So, so the general gist of the question is sort of, how can you sort of get into a hobby like you know, software engineering, programming, this kind of making apps, these kind of things? Uh, when sort of nobody like in your physical like vicinity is into it. Yeah, so I mean there's you know a couple of different ways. So um, one is I you know these on massively online learning platforms often have um, forums, and so you already know that people in some if there's one that's in that uh, domain, right? That they're like uh, iPhone development. I'm, I'm sure there's probably some. You'll mm -hmm. probably find that there are people there who are also posting in the forum and just kind of like start chatting with them. If you have ideas yeah. for things, try to say like, hey, you know, I have this, I'm sure there's an area devoted like, hey, like I have this idea, like anybody want to, you know, work on this with me or whatever. The other thing I would recommend is um, trying to find open source people doing something similar. Totally. So for mobile development, it's a little hard um, because the open source thing gets a little touchy depending on exactly what you're trying to do. Yeah, like most open source people want to write tools and libraries and things like that, whereas like most apps are kind of end products. Um, but there, but there, you might be able to find something in that region, so that would be something else. Um, and then another thing would be like, if depending on what you're interested in developing, and then what you're trying to learn. So if you're trying to get connected with other people, kind of to just work on something together, which is an excellent, you know, resume builder for college, you know, admissions for getting a job. You know, you might be able to go to something like if you're interested in game programming, going to a game programming forum yep. and finding people who are on a project and need help. Now, what you have to be careful is people there may not be as uh, devoted as you are, or maybe more devoted than you're willing to be. Right. So you, you might have to do some kind of, you know, be just be upfront about like what your level of you know interest is and how much time you'd be willing to put into it. But you might be able to find like a 
a match, right? So a lot of people are there looking, they have ideas and they're looking for developers. So that might be a good match. Yeah, or totally. they're, you know, developers looking for other developers, right? So that, that's another thing to explore. And depending on what niche you're in, there, yeah, there could be a lot of uh, people interested in that kind of Yeah, thing. totally. I mean, so a little anecdote about this is I, um, when I did a lot of game programming, especially when I was younger, I just kind of went on my own. I didn't really like go to forums, didn't really pay much attention. So because of that, I wasted a lot of time you know like I made it wasn't wasted because it's kind of valuable but personally but as from a purpose of making something it was kind of a waste like I spent all this time you know dealing with writing things to a file and reading them whereas like I could have just used protocol buffers or thrift like we talked about in an earlier episode and I just I just wasn't a very like efficient programmer and uh, on top of that the even worse thing was that I made things that people didn't want to play. And it's like, and I had nobody but myself to really go off of, you know? And so, and I'm not Tarn Adams. Even your mom, even your mom wouldn't play him? No, even my oh, mom. That's sad. Yeah, she started and she was like, no. She's like, she's like, this isn't for hardcore players, so I'm out. <laughs> she, uh, but no, so it's like, I'm not Tarn Adams. I, I can't just like make genius like by myself. So it turns out that when I um, started getting into like 3D modeling and more artsy side projects, um, I got together with like Pixel Junk and some other forums, um, and I was kind of like sharing pictures, and they gave me a ton of feedback. I'm like, oh, you know, you're doing this totally wrong. Like, you're using this kind of like I was using an iconosphere instead of a UV sphere, and then it became really hard to texture. And they're just giving me tons of feedback, and that is incredibly useful. Like now, hmm. I feel like I can make 3D models like really well. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Put your work out there. So I was going to mention something similar as well, like start a blog, right? Like, yeah, it seems yeah. kind of weird, but I mean, if you start and and then just start posting like to various you know people that you admire, look up to, or other people are doing something similar, and say like, hey, you know, you should check out this. Like, what do you think? Do you have any comments? Could you like look at this and and yep. critique this for me or whatever? Right? Like, I mean, it, it's hard to put yourself out there to you know be criticized, but you know, just remember you're just like learning, right? Like we're all learning. Like totally. we have to remember that there are always somebody better than us. Yeah, totally. And they are on that forum, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, just going to a popular forum is like, hey, I made this. Like, anybody have feedback? And you'll yep. get some jerks on there, right? Like, people like, ah, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. I mean, you got to deal. That's the internet, that. right? Like, exactly. That's and what that happens to me every time I try to play a game online. Oh, that's so the like, worst. You're the worst. I actually, I was playing Defense of the Ancients, which is known for having, like, big time, like, trolls and uh -huh. trolls and things like that. And somebody told me the other day, that like I should kill myself because like I wasn't doing well in the game or whatever uh, and like you know of course it doesn't matter but like I just for some reason it like resonated and I thought about it and I was like you know like this person like they'll just say absolutely anything like they don't really like it's not even like I don't think the person like what he's saying is even going through his head you know what I mean like it's going through a part of the brain that just like blurts out you know what I mean like yeah, doesn't actually think about it that's a shame so yeah. you'll get you'll get all kinds if you go to forums but um you know, a couple of forums I've been to, um, I've been to TIG Source, T-I-G Source, which is oh, a okay. game developer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they also have artist uh, forums oh, there, If too. you're into games, yeah, that would be also really, like, the, the independent, but also the ones where they do, like, 72-hour thing, right? Like, oh, yeah. develop a game in Make 72 game hours, in right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then you submit it, and people review it. Like, they have a judge panel or popular vote or whatever, and people will give you feedback, yeah. right? Like, yeah, and that's the other thing, too, is you realize, wow, this guy made an entire game in a day, and I like got my code to compile. Ludum Dare. Is that, is that what it's <laughs> yeah, called? Yeah, that's Ludum right. Ludum Dare? Yeah, check that out. So, yeah, you learn a lot of really interesting things from that. So, yeah, hopefully that gives you some advice, Aaron. 
Um, All right, so I got another question here. I'll, okay. okay. So we'll, we'll uh, try to respect the names that are in here. But hi, my name is Brian from the Detroit area. Nice. I love the podcast. Okay, maybe we won't read like it sounds like <laughs> really like self-patting on the back when we read the quote unquote air quotes Brian, <laughs> aka Jason. <laughs> no, we're just okay. Kidding. So his question isn't really about is technology, Brian. but but he's asking for our opinion. So uh, so he's in high school. He's got a good GPA, and he's got uh, you know several friends who aren't really doing well with uh, all the pressures of doing school. And he's doing research, and he discovered that the you know the current school system is meant to prepare the students for, you know, basically a factory job. So this is like a, you've seen, I've, I've seen videos about this on the internet, like we're, you know, this was meant to be a trade, we would go to work in a factory, get a pension, retire, right? like this yep. whole thing, and then that paradigm is changing. The nine to five. Yeah, and like, the, you know, they were meant to learn this way because this is the way the factory was, and, and now we're knowledge workers. Yep. You know, this is different, you'll hear that term. So it says, this worked perfectly for my grandfather who worked in a factory. Uh, but. Seeing as there are no more factory jobs, you know, at least in the United States, should it still really be set up that way? Um, and should schools change to follow what occupations people will actually follow? So um, this is something I'm actually like really interested in. So having a young daughter, I'm uh, interested in what should I save for college? College is gonna be really expensive by the time. Is college gonna be different? Should mm -hmm. I just not bother? Should I? What should I encourage her to do? How should I help her? And I think there's a couple of things you have to balance here. Well, I guess I should have given this to you to answer. Sorry. No, first, no. Because I read the question. We'll trade it's off. okay. So uh, I like I'm this. I'm glad that you're passionate about, about this question. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of things you have to balance. So one is when you're young, you often don't know what you want to be when you grow up, right? So yeah. I still have really don't really know what I want to be when I grow up <laughs> to some extent. But you know, when younger you are, if you start too early, you're siloing people, right? Yeah, and then true. people kind of get too far into something before they realize it's not what they want to do, and then it's hard to switch because if you switch, you're giving up years of, uh, you know, experience in yeah. that thing that other people have and you won't have. And actually, so having a family from Europe, you know, most of my cousins, my parents are originally from Europe. Um, my, I noticed that they do this much earlier in Europe. So, so very early on, even as early as in what would be middle school over here. Um, you know, you you pick a discipline, mm. and I noticed as a result that the um, the a lot of my cousins from Europe who also study computer science because we're kind of like a nerd family, I guess, it's in the genes. But um, they they have they're extremely good at like math and theory and computer, you know, science things like that. But they don't really have like that creative, like that very broad creative. Like they don't know the things that we know about like psychology, sociology, all these like gen ed. I think there's what it was called when I was in college. They don't have the breadth that we do, you know? And so I think it's actually just a great thing that we don't specialize early. So but there is still like another aspect of it, which is, so you, so you have that, right? It's like specializing and, and it is an issue. Then you have another, which is the way, like different people learn different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this is hard because the it's a chicken and egg problem, right? So uh, companies are set up to hire college graduates, or you know, take like a you know a highly skilled knowledge-based job, like going to work in Silicon Valley for a large, let's say Yahoo. You're going to go work for Yahoo, and um, since programming throwdown, maybe we'll pick a programming company, <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. software company. So you're going to work for Yahoo. Yahoo is set up to hire people out of college, right? Right. You know, even if they've been in the workforce a long time, like they'll still assume they went to college at some level, or, or have a really good professional background to hire them. Yep. Um, and then colleges expect people out of high schools. 
and they expect them with a certain amount of level. And high schools have expect middle school and, and on down. But as you're growing up, if you're going to go to college and college is a certain way, the high school has some obligation to help you prepare for a college that's of that type. Yeah. So, you know, things like, oh, people might learn better by, you know, um, different methods or going online or playing games or watching videos. But if you if that's not a, an option for you when you get to college, now it's becoming less and less of that's a problem. But if you can't learn that way and get what's accepted of society today, the high school has failed you in some way, right? right? Because yeah. you're not prepared to go into college and learn the way, like learning how to learn. That's what you hear it and it's cliche, but like, oh, you're being taught not the skills, but how, learning how to learn so that when you get wherever you're going, you'll know like how to figure out what to do. Yeah. And so you have to balance that that other aspect of it. And, you know, some people may learn really good in the current system and, and some jobs are, are necessary to do that way. And it is also important that we educate a large population to a certain level, like, you know, to have a good uh, a learned uh, citizenry. And so that's important as well. But I mean, going forward, I think we are going to see changes. We're going to see shifts in how education's done and, and what's going on. And until then, we kind of just have to sit tight because big changes, you know, are, are also dangerous because although you may really like the idea of, you know, just going out and doing your own thing instead of going to college, you know, at this point, like you could do well. Like I know people who have done well doing that, but you can't really recommend that because yeah, it's totally. not, we don't have a lot of statistics on how well people who do that do. That's the thing. And, and, and the thing is, is, you know, with the exception of people like Steve Jobs and, and things like that, but for the vast majority, um, you know, chances are when you finish with your schooling at whatever level it is, you're going to apply for jobs. Um, now, if, you know, if you're this entrepreneur like Steve Jobs and you're willing to go broke to like try and start a business, things like that, then it's sort of a little different. But for most, for most people out there, you're, even Steve Jobs worked at Atari um, for a while before he started his own business. And he was in college, you know, in and out of college during that time. So a lot of businesses, they get thousands of, like Yahoo probably gets thousands of applicants every day, maybe, maybe millions, right? Who knows? And so it's just not worth it for them to, to, to take a chance with somebody who like, let's say didn't graduate high school, right? So it's just, it's just not worth it because they know that like they would have to, think of all the extra HR people, right? Like if they could throw out, let's say 10% of the resumes, then that's probably gonna save them what, like 60,000, yeah, maybe 100,000 So we had this conversation. Dollars, so right? it's, the problem is, and this is depending on the size of the company, but if you take a normal medium to large company, it is so hard to actually fire somebody oh, there's for that so too. many reasons. Yeah. So it is really, really, really risky to hire the wrong person. Right, right. And so what companies do, and it's to a shame, they miss a lot of good, I, I, we, we were having this conversation the other day about test anxiety, right? Yeah. So like some people just have interview anxiety and it's a shame, but that company just can't, there's another person where that one came from, right? right? And right. somebody may look down the line and say, that person went on to become the next Steve Jobs, like you should have hired them. Maybe, but at the time they're probably making the right decision by yeah, not because totally. you know they got to go with. In some ways, they're missing out on the best worker because they have to take a worker that they know will fit. Yeah, um, and that's changing some with you know remote working and you know people able to do other stuff. Yeah, you can set up a presence online which you couldn't do before. Yeah, but you can still. prove like here I have a portfolio of stuff I'm demonstrating. Yeah. But at the same time, if you have that much initiative to not go to college and to do really well, I like, can still learn you know, you probably don't want to go work for one of those big companies anyways. Yeah. So, but, but I'm a big proponent of apprenticeship. Like I think that would be really awesome and a good thing, right? Which is basically 
instead you would go to college but college would be much more limited maybe online general education type a little bit of specific but then instead of all that money being spent you know to, to be taught you would go apprentice with somebody so people would offer themselves up for apprenticeship and they would be trained as apprentice mentors apprentors no know. i think mentor i don't know what the Okay, uh, I'm master. I, I think a master. Is Maybe the one master. Who's okay. Anyways, yeah. whatever. Right. And so, like, you would be able to find one and, like, oh, I want to be a software engineer, and you would pay him. Why? Because he's going to teach you some of his secrets. Yeah. He's going to be less efficient because he has to teach you, but you're going to work alongside him. And in some ways, I think that would be better. But in some ways, if you go back and look at what apprenticeship was like eh, maybe we <laughs> yeah, ought to be exactly. careful and like indentured servants and well basically you you know and it, uh so i read read a little bit about people becoming like uh chefs and so like you oh, start yeah. off and like you're doing like that you're like scrubbing mushrooms all night long yeah, exactly. for like weeks then you're like you upgrade to like peeling carrots you <laughs> yeah. know for like months and then like you get to like dice something you know and like you keep getting yelled at by the chef and working horrible hours and you do this for like years in the hopes that you might get a chance to like demonstrate yourself. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's better. Yeah, like, that's uh, okay, rough. so yeah, I, there's a balance, like everything, and, and we need to explore options. But I think for yeah. now, I think in the short term, I don't see any big, big changes in, in the way companies yeah. will do hiring and stuff. And, and the other thing, so the, the email seems to indicate specifically like schedule. Like, like I remember, you know, when I went to high school, it's like when I was in high school, <laughs> walked uphill both. No, so I this is no joke. I had to get up at four thirty in the morning to catch because I, I. So real quick anecdote: I went to this kind of special school. They the way my area um, in Florida was set up was they had um, they had special schools for people who had special interests. So like my interest is engineering, so they had an engineering school, and anyone within like. I think it was like 50 miles or something could go to this school for free they would bus you and everything like if as long as you had like certain aptitudes so i went to a school that was super far away the bus only picked up like six people and i had to get up at 4 30 in the morning to get there by seven right it was crazy and you know i've i don't, I don't think i've ever woken up at 4 30 since high school <laughs> like, ever um so it's true that like the schedule, you know, starting at seven is kind of, you know, as computer science, we were kind of used to just getting up whenever, starting whenever. And, and you know, it's like, and then going, you know, working yeah. our time. It's hard, right? Maybe I'm getting older. It's self-control, right? Like it builds character. But yeah, that's the big thing is I think that it's a combination of two things. One is school is as much a social, like, like learning platform as it is a way to teach you algebra and geometry and these things. So you know, the fact that you're all in it together really means something. And I got a lot out of just being in a room full of people who are all doing the same thing. Hmm. So I felt like I, that was a, like one thing that I'm thinking of right now is I made a calculator program which could do like the quadratic equation and things uh, like yeah, that. Oh yeah, I think you told us this story, but yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, briefly. real brief. And then you know, the teacher- Maybe you just told me, I don't know. Um, possibly. So the teacher, you know, she realized we were doing this. She realized I'd given the program to everybody and she, you know, made us all wipe our, our calculators before every test. And then of course I wrote, I wrote that program again and then I wrote a program that looked like you were wiping the calculator, but you weren't. It was pretty awesome. A little, little arms race going on there. But you know, it's cool to get everyone in on it and something fun about that. And so to do that, um, everyone has to be there at the same time. And uh, you know, as, as parents now, we can start to understand, or at least you as a parent, can start to understand how hard it is to like work around your kid's schedule and like take them to school and get yourself to work and things like that. So, yeah. you know, it's it high, you know, high school schedule, the whole school schedule, 
as a receiver of that schedule, it sucked. I hated getting up early and things like that. But now I can sort of understand why it is that way. And, um, you know, it's Brian, you know, it really sucks getting up early. But uh, then you can go to college in like, did he say what year he was? No. No, but in at most three years from now, you'll be in college and you can set your own schedule. So. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I do. <laughs> I, I feel like it's like the angst, like when, when you know something better is coming and like you can see, like, like we can see now colleges will change, like they'll change, but you're not sure quite how they're going to change. There will be some people who will take bold steps and down the road will be, you know, praises heaped upon them as pioneers. But there will be a lot of people who try crazy things and kind of fail and you'll just kind of forget about them. But, you know, their lives might be, this is the, what is that called? I don't know. There's, there's like a name for it, but basically like the personal risk to you is like very high. So, like, if a huge amount of people try crazy things, some people will succeed, and then you have, you know, survivorship bias. Like, those are the people you'll remember, but there'll be a whole bunch of people who fall by the wayside as yeah, kind of crazies. Totally, totally. You know, so, uh, there's a risk. But, yeah, yeah. we feel you. I remember that. Yeah, it was rough. It, it, it does get better. All right, so here we go. You want to read this one? Uh, sure. This is from Joshua Brown. Uh, and, unfortunately, Josh had to go, so he's going to be watching this. Later. What's the word called? post hoc. Or post talk. <laughs> He's going to be watching this later. <laughs> but uh, his question is I'm just learning programming using your recommended Learn Python the hard way. My goal is to integrate Circos into Solus OS as a file manager. What sort of language should I be learning after I master Python to accomplish this? So I actually looked this up. Oh, okay, good. I was yeah. about to say. <laughs> no worries. So yeah, I found this question kind of interesting because I didn't know what either of those two things were. So um, Solus OS is a Linux distro um, forked from Debian. Okay. So effectively Debian. Um, and Circos is a pretty cool visualization library written in Perl where um, you give it some XML in a certain format. Oh. It digests the XML and produces some really beautiful um, yeah, pictures. Yeah, I'm on the page now. This is cool. Yeah. So... Um, so the short answer, and then we can always jump another, you know, more detailed. But basically, um, it the the Circos accepts um, XML, and so you can use any programming language you want. So you know, there's XML writers for just about any language. Um, don't try and like write your own XML, like write the open tag, you know, write the greater than sign. Don't do that. There's XML writers. If you're using Python, which you said that you're um, studying. You can totally use Python. There's an XML um, library you can import. And uh, it's pretty awesome. It'll let you write XML. I've used it before. It's great. Um, you can write your XML, and then the Circos program can digest it and produce those awesome graphs. So, Yeah, I mean, I think part of like learning programming, and this is something I struggle with, but is like struggling to do things in the programming, like the thing you know. So everything's a nail when all you have is a hammer. Yeah, right, right. right? And part of what we talk about programming right now is learning like other languages, but yep. go for it. Like try to, when you're learning a language, part of it is going for, if you only know one language, like trying to solve something before you realize like, oh, this is bad at this. And then you know what to go look for the replacement, like what characteristics of the replacement yep. should be. And if you know multiple languages, you can't learn what the pros and cons of that language are until you try to do something and kind of realize like, oh, it doesn't really work for this. Yeah, or, oh, totally. it's really good at this, but really bad at this, right? And so, you know, I think that's like part of like the learning is like you kind of just have to go for it and see how far, like see where you'll get stuck. 
Because yeah. until you, like I haven't done this before, like I've never you know integrated these two things together. It sounds kind of cool. Like yeah, when I looked at that awesome. website. It looks it looks really nice. Yeah, Josh, real quick, sorry to inject. If you do this, let us know. We <laughs> want to see it. I, and if it works on Ubuntu, even better. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like I think part of it is like you know nobody's done it before, so you kind of got to try something, and then ask for help, right? Like and then be like, oh, like I, how do I do this thing? Like oh, Python's not good for that. Like oh, okay. And as you grow as a programmer, programmer, part of that is like doing that sooner, yep. right? So like, you know, you've talked about this with uh, some of the uh, machine learning algorithms, right? Like, especially like AI stuff about kind of pruning that tree when you're playing chess, kind of understanding this path of plays goes nowhere good. Like I don't need to go process the whole thing. Yep. And like part of it is learning as you program, like that's heuristics, like, oh, hmm, this language looks like it supports regular expressions really well. I don't care. I'm not going to use regular expressions, <laughs> yeah. you know, or like, Ooh, this, this thing doesn't, isn't performant. It doesn't run really fast, but that's okay because I'm doing something only once. Like I only need to do this thing once. So yeah. it, that's not a huge thing for me. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. But that's a good question though. It's yeah. Great question. Interesting. And Joshua Brown uh, was from Los Angeles. He ah, said. So okay, cool. Pretty cool. Getting questions from around the world. Cool. And that's good. They look like open source projects then, right? So yeah, both a, of a great way to get involved. It, it's really intimidating source. at first, like to get involved in open source. It's yeah. always like overwhelming and you kind of want to quit, but you just kind of have to stick in there for yeah. a while, try it. And, you know, eventually you'll start to make at least a little progress and then yeah the, the cool thing that josh is doing is that he already has something in mind that he wants to use this library for so you know if it turns out that oh uh the library doesn't work when i give it you know file names because file names have colons in them and the library crashes on colons well he's going to be really compelled to like go into the open source library, you know, fix the colon problem, submit a patch to GitHub where this is located and get them to fix it. And then you have a great feeling afterwards. Like, you know, I made like contribution that made this library even better. And uh, so it's pretty awesome. It's a great way to sort of get started. Yeah, so as a slight segue, this is actually really interesting. So going from a, one company I was working at in Florida, which didn't do that much with open source stuff really. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and very, I mean, didn't like, encourage people to kind of modify the source and change something to back to a company where it's actually been slightly a struggle for me. I've, I've been criticized a couple times and also find other people doing it just blowing my mind where it's like, oh, the library doesn't support this. This thing doesn't work. Recompile it, change it, submit it back, you know, like fix yeah. it. Like, why are you like just changing what you do or working around it? Just fix it. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fix it? Are you crazy? <laughs> like, oh, and if you don't fix it, at least let them know. Like, you should tell that open source project, hey, I would really love to use it this way. And like, you know, you guys should fix this. Yeah. Um, yeah, that just, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It, yeah, it, that's pretty a awesome. good thing about working, I guess, out here in Silicon Valley is like people are more open to those kinds of things. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, you know, Silicon Valley has this thing where, you know, there's many startups. Like all these companies, like Twitter was a startup with like, who knows, three, four people. And then it grew, right? All of these companies started off very small. And so they're sort of indebted to these open source projects. Otherwise, you know, they, a small team wouldn't have been able to start something that investors could appreciate. So because of this indebtedness, there's like this philosophy in Silicon Valley that you give back and that you keep a healthy ecosystem so that the next startup can can get going, right? And so, yeah. and yeah, it's probably like that in other awesome. places besides Silicon Valley. Oh yeah, totally. I just that's just you know, I, I can't speak to the other places because I don't know. Yep. Yeah. So. So, um, do you want to read this one? Sure. All right. So, uh, hey guys, love the show. Okay. Was this you again? <laughs> you wrote all these questions. <laughs> so this is, this is Mike from Virginia. All right. So, hey guys, love the show. Your discussion about 
the automated paper scanning to detect cheaters reminded me of one of my friends that is a teacher for an online school. She told me that they were looking to expel some of the students for plagiarism. They suspect the students are submitting the bare minimum to remain enrolled so they can collect the student loan money. Unfortunately, the teachers have to waste time dealing with these creeps instead of the actual students get less attention. Grr. Yep. Grr. Yeah, I've heard of this over and over again from teacher friends and stuff. Really? I've never heard of this. Yeah, basically, like, it's really hard to expel students, and you spend way more time than you can really merit. And wow. so, like, even people who are doing deliberately bad stuff or cheating or whatever, like, it, it's almost not worth your... So this is, this is sort of digressions. So I'll keep it short, but the same is true with renters. So I yes. have a friend who's renting his house um, to someone else because he moved, and um, the person just stopped paying their bill, like stopped paying their rent. And it turns out that it takes, like on average, something like over a year to evict somebody who's not paying their rent. It's just absolutely insane. Now, if, like, if they're, if they're doing other things, like if they're drinking or something, then like that can expedite it. But if they, especially if they have a lawyer or if they know the system pretty well, it can take over 12 months to evict somebody who hasn't, it's just insane. So. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, so there's a question. Do you know of any free open source methods to sync mobile data between mobile devices, more than one, and a remote server? He's using Air Mobile App and Microsoft SQL on the server, but he's open to other options. Seems like everything requires big time customization to do conflict checking. Hmm. So it sounds like what he's trying to do here, I would assume, is for an app he's developing. Right. So so trying to like have a remote server and, and synchronize. So I've not really done this before. So have well, you? let's talk about files first. If, okay. if you want to do files, there's a number of options. There's like Dropbox, SugarSync, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are pretty awesome. You can actually put a file in your Dropbox and uh, it doesn't exactly just show up magically in your phone, which I wish it did. It's actually a big complaint I have with Dropbox. You actually have to go in your phone and say, hey, sync these files. So if you add a new file, you have to, whoop, lights just went out. <laughs> okay, they're back. So you have to actually like sync those files. Um, but once you've checked the box for, the, for a file, then any changes you make on your phone like immediately go to the, to the computer. And so this, uh, this works really well for a lot of, like if you want to like, make notes to yourself, things like that. Um, with respect to actual data, um, this is kind of tricky, right? So the way most apps work is the phone might keep some local cached copy, but then it frequently hits the server, right? And so you might have some server that has one database, and then as the phone needs different pieces of the database, it can grab those, and if the phone needs to make updates. That's how like you know most apps work. In your case, it sounds like you want to keep you know, the entire database on your phone and on, and on the server and sort of keep the transactions in sync between the two. Um, that's going to be pretty tricky. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I also don't know of, uh, um, Okay, yeah, so Air, oh, that's Adobe Air, that's right, that's right. Adobe yeah, Adobe. Mobile app, okay. So I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. One thing you could do is you could have like a, a handshaking, like a negotiation thing. So basically, let's say, let's say you make the assumption that if there's a conflict, the server wins. So if you can work under that assumption, then you can have the phone and the server send messages to each other using Thrift or whatever. Maybe even Air has an RPC, like a remote procedure call framework. And so the phone would send a message to the server saying, hey, change this record, update this, like a new student has a test, 
uh, here's the student and test and, and the essay or something, right? And the server can also say, hey, here's a student and an essay. If, if you get a conflict, like the same student gets like created with two different essays at the same time, you just let the server win. So the, so the phone would just take the server's answer. And if the server gets a conflict, it would just throw out the phone's answer. You could probably code something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, so it's a little hard, I guess, the details are a little, a little loose. But another thing which I've used before is cheesy and people don't like it. But so if, if you have one account, one person should be editing the data at a time. And so if that's the case, you can just have a, a method for basically determining if somebody's currently accessing or modifying the data and other people have to be read only. Right, that So makes then sense. every other, so essentially the server is only a server. Everything else has to become a client of some sort, even if it's on that computer. And when one is connected until it either logs out or has some sort of timeout, everybody else can only be in read mode. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and that, you know, that also will prevent it. It's a little cheesier and, you know, people might not like it, but it is simple and straightforward. The other thing would be for, this is like general advice, I guess, when, when you come across problems like this is, you know, really just working on the Google for a while and like trying to like search out, like yeah. other people have had similar problems, try ways of rephrasing it. I know like I find, and maybe this is not true for our listeners, but I find like people I know like in day-to-day -day life, like just aren't good at, so I say Googling, but I just mean searching, like being whatever Yahoo, it doesn't matter what you use, but like understanding like how to try permutation, state it different ways, because you don't know, like part of the hard part is finding out what the word is that most people are using, because yep. it might not be the same word you're using yeah, to describe totally. the problem. Um, and so again, forums can be a help there because other people can help you with that if they're in the, the, the domain, but also just, trying a little longer at, at searching and trying to find somebody else who may have encountered that problem. Yeah, and the other thing is keep it simple, right? So in this case, you know, maybe where he's going with this is he wants to have like all the students' tests on all the phones so that they can scan so that they don't have to hit the server every time they want to check if someone's, you know, cheating. But that might be like a nice optimization, but that might not be necessary. Like maybe the server could check for cheating, like from everyone, every phone, you know, if you have like a thousand users, then the server can check like a thousand times and it could even have a delay. It could say, hey, I'm checking 10 other people right now, like yours is in the queue or something like that. And that might be way easier than making some kind of crazy synchronization, you know? So keep it simple, try and keep everything on the server if at all possible. And if you can't do that, yeah, then you could do some kind of handshaking. Yep. Yeah. All right. I think uh, so. We're running kind of long on time already. We're already at an hour and ten minutes. So we'll yeah, do one or two more. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, so we can do two more. All right. So we have Corey Reese, Corey from Texas, and his question is: What programming language would you recommend for a beginner? Yeah. So I mean, we've talked about this a little bit on on past shows. It, it kind of depends on what you want to do, but I like Python for beginners. Me too. I was going to say Python. But so. also, I mean... We didn't rehearse that. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, uh, actually, Erlang? Yeah, Erlang Haskell. good. Haskell? Yep. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. No, 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 okay. no, not so much those. I mean, you can, I guess. If you, if you started with that, you'd be like... An really, Uber programmer. Yeah, you'd be really good at stuff that most people aren't. <laughs> so, I mean, I really think, like, Python is yeah. a good blend between, like, you know, easy to use, but also, and, like, the batteries included we've talked about before in that episode. Yeah. And also, uh, like, being useful for real-world things. Um, if you want to kind of jump straight in, like, Java or C++, right? Like, I mean, that's what still, like, most of the world's 
you know, software houses are using. Yep. And so learning those from early, it, it's never a bad thing. Totally. But yeah, it's not as much reward up front. You don't get that immediate satisfaction the same way. Yep. But you know, I'm also inclined to say JavaScript. Really? That's interesting. Why JavaScript? So, I mean, think about like all the, if you're, if you're going for like, if you're the kind of person who needs victories, like what better way, right? That's true. You know, so like even if you write client server now with like Node Node.js, right? It's, yeah. a, it's actually on a task of mine, probably longer standing than it should have been. So I don't know JavaScript that well. I haven't really done more than just very simple stuff. But like all the stuff I read, I have a task of mine to learn it and to actually implement client server stuff completely in JavaScript. Yeah. With like Node.js and a JavaScript front end and web page development. That is just so like you, I mean, you could make good, earn a living at just you know doing JavaScript programming. Yeah, totally. Right? And so like, I, and then also like, there's a lot of good tutorials out there because a lot of people who aren't expert programmers are that's the first thing they learn because that's what they need. Yeah. And so there's a lot sense. of good resources out there, and you can do more and more than you ever could before with it. Yeah, it makes it. And plus, like, you don't have to deal with deploying. Like, if you make some Java app, you have to like have people download it, and then half the people they don't have Java installed. You have to deal with that. If you're writing something in JavaScript, you just make a website and you're like, hey, everybody, check out my website. And it just works, you know? So as far as like going back to what we were saying earlier about getting feedback and being part of a community and things like that, it's way easier to say, go on some forum and say, everyone go to this website than it is to say- Forget that, email your mom or dad or your brother or sister or your cousin or your aunt and like, hey, like, what do you think about this? Yeah, it's much harder to be like, Hey, download Mom, this Java yeah, and install run Java. This. Download this hundred meg jar file that I have, and then double click on it. Yeah, yeah. So JavaScript is actually an amazing choice. I didn't even think about yeah, it. Yeah. I, I, okay. So that's a non-personal recommendation. But like, I, like as far as everything I read, I mean, I, I wouldn't feel too bad about somebody taking that advice. Yeah, totally. So one last question. This is from Joey Andres, and uh, I'm using his email address to infer his location. He's his email address says he's from Alberta, Canada. All right. So we'll assume that that's true. Um, his question is, uh, he's a first year undergrad major in computer science. He's starting to realize the importance of number theory and invariance. Um, what path should he take to sort of re- to understand more about like the math behind computer science? So how can he get into sort of the theoretical parts of it? I, I think this is your, this is like the, right. the bowling ball is going straight down your lane. <laughs> yeah, this is a softball. Okay, so um, I'll totally take this. Uh, great question, Joey. Uh, so yeah, the mathematics of computer science is super, super interesting. Um, you know, number theory, of course, incredibly important. A lot of interesting things there. Um, I would think like one of the best ways to get into this kind of thing is to get into complexity analysis because that's something you're going to have to do a lot of anyways Interesting. Mm-hmm. and that is something that's it's sort of it's very intuitive like the way it starts is imagine if you have like a list of you know the way they do it typically is with sorting right so you have a list of numbers and then they show you this thing called bubble sort where you have two for loops and then inside the two for loops you do some swapping right or there's some there's some conditional swapping there and when you're done the list is sorted and you can see this takes n squared time. And you can actually see it in the for loops. Like you have the n, and then inside the for loop, you have another you have another n, so n squared. Um, then they get into like n log n and things like that. And then they show how things like a, like a heap are order one on amortized order one. Even though there are cases where you know heap insertion and deletion, actually heap, heap retrieval is always order one. Anyways, there's some algorithms 
like heap insertion, say, which can be order log n. But uh, but if you do it in a certain way, um, amortize, which means kind of like on average, it's order one. So anyways, these complexity analysis this is a good way to get started. And it's really useful as an engineer to when you're designing new algorithms to say, oh, you know, this if I design it this way, it can be like way faster. Like we're talking instead of taking years, it takes three minutes, right? Um, you know, some of the even more like deeply theoretical things about like, you know, complexity, uh, not complexity, but uh, like information, like how much information is there, like Kolmogorov complexity of, of <laughs> algorithms and data and things like that. That, that stuff is super interesting, but that could be like a higher barrier of entry, you know? So by starting with complexity analysis, it's something like sort of easy to grasp. Then it's, it's, you can sort of jump into some of the other things. Yeah, so I mean, I guess there's kind of two, two ways to view that question. I think that that's probably like the, the way you're viewing. But other thing that, I mean, it's, you run into a lot in computers, depending on what you do, is even stuff that's not directly computer science, but it's related. So talk about like discrete math or whatever, like how floating point numbers work. So that can get interesting. But even less obvious things like prime numbers. So like, right, like calculating prime numbers or, you know, uh, geometric algorithms, right? Like kind of doing stuff that's like uh, convex hole, right? Like these kind yeah. of things involve math. And if you don't know what they mean, you can look them up. And so, uh, you know, those things you do encounter in programming fairly frequently and you hear them discussed. So those are, I, I guess, kind of related to like number theory type stuff or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and those are interesting to me. I never got very deep into them, but kind of understanding them because a lot of stuff like cryptography you come across has a lot to do with with prime numbers and that kind of stuff. And then just getting a more of an understanding of that kind of level of math can be really useful. And I find for, for that, I would recommend like something like Project Euler, Euler depending on how yeah. you say it, right? This is, you can search it, Project E-U-L-E-R, and they have various uh, programming challenges, problems. And a lot of those, if I recall correctly, will involve you needing to understand things like you know, how to find a prime number or they'll actually give you kind of like a little bit of like, here's the certain kinds of numbers we're looking for. You should calculate these, you know? Um, and these are highly related to like ACM programming competitions, if you yep. see those, or something called Top Coder. Yep. So you can go on there and those very deeply, uh, Top Coder for instance, or even ACM, will combine what Jason's talking about with what I'm talking about. So you'll need to know on the one hand, like how are prime numbers calculated? And on the other hand, the default algorithm for doing that, unless the problem gives you some cheat, like way to shortcut it, like what will that complexity be? Yep. And could I do it in enough time? Or do I need to look for that shortcut, you know, and find out what it is? Is that the trick to solving the problem? And, and those methods are often, they'll have solutions for you. So you can um, see what you should have done and then you can learn from that. Yeah, another, uh, just to recommend some reading material on this is, um, Algorithms in C++ by Robert Sedgwick. And maybe we'll post a link on, on the blog or something like that. But yeah, Algorithms in C++, it's actually two books. There's a volume one through four, which got assembled into oh, one man. book, and a volume five, which takes up an entire separate book because it's so epic. But yeah, Robert Sedgwick wrote this Algorithms in C++ series and has amazing like theoretical and application-based like framework in it. So he actually talks about like max flow. So in other words, given a graph and assume the graph are like pipes and, and so they show how much water can go through these pipes. Like how much, what's the maximum flow between two nodes? Like assuming that you could use all the pipes, right? So he actually talks about the mathematical like complexity and then mathematical intuition behind how the algorithm works and then he shows the algorithm. So highly recommended reading. Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
I mean, it all depends on what kind of programming you end up doing and how much of this you need to know or don't need to know. Or, but yeah, I mean, the, ugh, math is. I mean, there are people who major in math, right? So totally. So yeah, and computer science is closely related to math yep. in many, many ways. So yeah, it can't hurt to learn that stuff. No, at least at some great. level. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I, I think that's a wrap. Thank thank you everybody who was on at one time or another or is still on the, <laughs> the hangout. Where, yep, Jason's giving you a, a wave. <laughs> hi, um, and we we appreciate it. And we are uh, going to be back to our regular episodes. We'll yep. have a language for our next time. Totally. And maybe we'll do another one of these mailbags. We'll see. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Did we ramble too long? Were we too off topic? We're always pretty rambly. So, yeah. so it feels good. People should be used to that. Thank you for all your feedback. Thank you for all the questions. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, It's been awesome doing the mailbag, answering people's questions. You know, it's great that um, – we sort of like aggregated a lot of these questions and then we can sort of dedicate a whole episode to it. I think that this worked really well. I appreciate everybody's contributions and uh, yeah. And thank you all for subscribing. We, we noticed increased downloadership. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of a lot of you are either downloading it multiple Actually, times or... Uh, I can show. Yeah, I or... Can show um, with you guys. Or yeah, stats. we're just becoming more popular. We're not sure what it is. So if you're a new listener, again, like Jason said, well, you're too late now. You've already listened to this episode, but check out another episode too. Yeah, so, um, you know, we released episode 20, you know, what, maybe three weeks ago or something. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of people have, have downloaded the episode, which is totally awesome. And, uh, you know, we appreciate all of your feedback and, you know, questions and comments. So uh, we have a few new languages. Some people said, hey, I don't have a question, but I want you to cover this. And we'll definitely be covering covering that for the next few weeks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, keep your emails coming to Programming Throwdown at gmail.com and uh, keep posting on G+. All right. Thank you, guys. Cool. See you later. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.